Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a very special presentation by Walter Murch, followed by a conversation hosted by Michael Lerner. This is part one of a three-part series titled Bode's Law Redux, New Evidence Confirms 18th Century Conjecture on Orbital Harmonies. I'd like to welcome Walter Murch back to the new school for a uh, talk on Bode's Law Redux, New Evidence Confirms an 18th Century Conjecture on Orbital Harmonies. Walter Murch is uh, a very distinguished uh, film editor, sound designer, director, translator, and amateur astronomer. His 46 years of pioneering sound design and picture editing work uh, includes uh, work on The Godfather, uh, 1, 2, and 3, Julia, Apocalypse Now, The English Patient, The Talented Mr. Ripley, Cold Mountain, and Jarhead, as well as The Return of Oz, which he wrote and directed. He's the author of In the Blink of an Eye, a book about the craft of filmmaking, and his latest film, which I loved, if you haven't seen it, please do, is called Particle Fever, which he edited a feature documentary on the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland and the search for the Higgs boson, um, which uh, he, uh, edit he edited. Um, and um, for me, what interests me most about Walter is not his extraordinary film career, but the depth and breadth of his mind and interests. And when I first heard him talk about Bode's Law here at the New School, I was completely fascinated. Uh, I think this is important work. And I would not be at all surprised if in the history of astronomy uh, that Walter's work deserves at least a significant asterisk as uh, as the field goes forward, because what he is doing, as you will see, is to um, rediscover a conjecture about the nature of orbital harmonies, which I think suggests really extraordinary things about the nature of the universe that are quite outside of what uh, astronomy today uh, considers um, plausible. Um, I asked Walter to come back um, with new science that's been emerging. And he's going to speak for about 45 minutes, then we'll take a break. Then he will speak for another 20 minutes. So this is really a lecture. Uh, and then after that, we will have a conversation. And if there's time, we will also uh, take a few questions. So with that, it is an honor and privilege to welcome Walter Murch. I wanted to thank Michael for uh, allowing me to come back after having done this uh, a version of this lecture uh, a number of years ago. Um, Michael has been a, a champion, as you just heard, of this idea. I'd also like to thank Ren Wexler, who's in the audience, who uh, over the last 15 or so years since we've known each other, has also indulged me and, and allowed me to present this at various venues of which he's been the impresario. Uh, I'd like to thank my wife, Aggie, who has put up with me for the last 20 years uh, banging on about this uh, during the intervals between films. Um, 
And I'd like to thank Arthur Kessler, who is uh, no longer with us, but who introduced me to Bode's Law when I was reading uh, a book he wrote called The Sleepwalkers, which I recommend to everybody. It's a wonderful uh, book. And Bode's Law appears in it as a, uh, a footnote. And um, that footnote led me down this rabbit hole um, very quickly, meaning within days I was completely transfixed by, by this idea um, of which I'm going to speak tonight. And um, he gave it some credence. Uh, he said that it was a, this peculiar observation made in the 18th century um, that a very simple mathematical um, uh, algorithm uh, would, when you expanded it, gave you the distances of the planets. Um, and um, let me uh, plunge in uh, to it. I, I should say uh, just in, in advance that uh, I worked on a film a number of years ago uh, and in the review in the New York Times it said rated R for nudity and metaphysics. Uh, so there's no nudity in this uh, but and there's no, you know, we, we'll get into metaphysics but there is a little bit of mathematics, which is almost as uh, um, uh, dangerous as metaphysics. Uh, it's not complicated math, but there is some mathematics. In fact, the, uh, in, in the world up to the 18th century, uh, anyone who had an education um, would be following something known as this, the quadrivium. Um, which was four paths into knowledge. One of them, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. And they were all related in the minds of European civilization going back uh, at least 1,000 years, if not 2,000, uh, to Pythagoras. Uh, arithmetic was pure number. Geometry was conceived of number in space. Music was number in time and astronomy was number in space and time. So it was all, each one of these was a, a path into some kind of deep truth. Um, the, um, this is the first, let me call it a photograph. It's not, it's a drawing by Galileo. Uh, but these were the first uh, planets, and he called them stars. Um, that were not seen by the naked eye. So these are the uh, satellites of Jupiter, which are um, named after Jupiter's illicit loves, um, one masculine, the other three feminine, uh, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. Um, and this was the beginning of the opening up, telescopically, of uh, our conception of the universe, uh, which until that point had been all based on naked eye observations. A number of years ago, we, we by I mean, I mean, just mean the collective we of uh, humanity, were able to take a photograph, the first photograph of three planets. You can just see them, these little red dots, uh, surrounding a distant star, which is 129 light years away. It's a new star, unlike our sun, which is 
four and a half billion, five billion years old. This one, they say, is only 60 million years old. And they are named not with illicit loves, but with the exciting B, C, and D, which represents the order in which they were discovered. Um, the curious thing about them, from uh, the point of view of what we're going to be talking about, is when you compare their orbits with each other. And these are large planets. They're almost little miniature suns themselves. They're bigger than Jupiter, our largest planet. And they're very far away from their star. The numbers there represent uh, the distance from the Earth to the sun is one. So the, the inmost, D, is 24 times further out than we are from the sun. Um, C is about as far from its sun at 38 as Pluto, our most distant uh, miniature planet. Um, and of course, B is way out there. But, um, well, the, and they recently discovered another one uh, even closer in. Um, when we superimpose those orbits of Jupiter's moons, uh, scaled to the same scale, we get this congruence of within a few percent. Uh, so that the distances of Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto compared to each other are almost identical to the distances of uh, E, D, C, and B. Um, and there are, those moons are, have tiny orbits um, compared to these giant planets. Nonetheless, there's a similarity between those two systems, which is, is provocative, let's say. Um, if we compare it to our solar system, uh, then we see that Earth, Mars, and Ceres, uh, which is the center of the asteroid belt, um, it's, it along with Pluto are uh, considered minor planets. Um, but you see, again, a, a very close uh, uh, alignment there. So the question, uh, before we get further along, uh, another thing that we're going to be talking about is music, uh, because unexpectedly, um, for us today in our world, there is a musical component to this. This would not have surprised people in the ancient world at all. That was Pythagoras's. Uh, initial assumption back, you know, 600 BC is that music and the universe are linked, uh, and he tried to estimate what that linkage was. Um, but in order to do that, I'm going to show you uh, 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 some way to conceive of music in a geometric way. So take the note E. E, by our standards, is 330 vibrations a second. Represented by our chorus uh, off stage. Uh, and C, a, a higher C than E, is 528. When we combine them together, we get a chord in which you can hear both notes and, in some metaphysical way, uh, the the totality of it all, which is very pleasing to us. And the ratio of those two notes to each other is 
five to eight, or in decimal units, 1.6. But we can also represent this geometrically. Imagine a circle or a sphere with a radius of 330 units. It doesn't matter what it is, inches or miles or light years. Um, and another circle with a radius of 528. And so now we see graphically the, the representation of something that we can hear musically. And this is, again, very Pythagorean, and we're skirting uh, around Mr. Pythagoras here uh, during this presentation. Uh, he, he will return a number of times. Um, the uh, ratio of F to A uh, is 1.25, geometrically uh, shown in this drawing. And that's how they sound together. And what we can do with these circles, which represent the, either the moons of Jupiter or these planets of uh, HR 8799 or whatever its number was, also have musical ratios. So uh, this is a new discovery. It is implicit and um, in, in the numbers of the orbits of the moons, uh, but it's something that I stumbled upon in the course of going down my rabbit hole. Um, anyone over the last uh, 400, 500 years since Copernicus could have observed this, but for some peculiar reason, nobody has. Um, it is um, uh, maybe the fact that music of the spheres is that concept is, is related with old and Aristotelian, Pythagorean ways of thinking, and we don't think like that anymore. Um, but if, if you're hearing this lecture for the first time, which some of you are, this is, let's call it, new buried information that is being exhumed in front of you. And what are the implications of this, which we'll get into? There's this wonderful word uh, which is useful, which is apophenia, which is the ability that humans have above all else to see patterns, sometimes where none exist at all. So this is a dangerous uh, uh, cliff that we are skirting in all of this stuff. And so I'm perfectly aware uh, of the danger of these kind of um, things. And Bode's Law is dangerous, talking about it in professional astronomical circles has until recently been like uh, you're, you get cast into the outer darkness if you mention this. If you're familiar with biology, uh, there's the theory of inherited uh, characteristics, Lamarckism, um, and Bode's law to astronomy is pretty much in the same place as Lamarckism is to Darwinism. It's, it's used to teach in Biology 101 or Astronomy 101. They hold up these theories and beat them to a pulp in front of you and say, if you ever think this way, then you are not a biologist or an astronomer. 
However, just as in recent years there has been a loosening of that and Lamarckism is kind of creeping back in through uh, what's called epigenetics, uh, Bode's law is beginning to seep back in. Uh, um, I've been pounding away at it for some time, but now professional astronomers are beginning to take another look at it. Primarily thanks to this. This is the Kepler mission, uh, launched a number of years ago, and uh, it, it was, it's a planet hunter, and it was looking for planets transiting distant stars. It produced a huge cornucopia of information, and then some series of uh, mechanical uh, things went wrong. Uh, about a couple of years ago, they managed to tweak it and it's still producing information. Nonetheless, it, it was so productive during its prime years that uh, we have a thousand new planets um, identified by it in our galaxy. So it's, it's just looking within our neighborhood, within our galaxy, not, uh, not even distant planets in our galaxy, let alone planets in other galaxies. So, uh, but we're, we're confident that the things that we discover uh, within, say, the nearest uh, quarter of our galaxy uh, will hold uh, over the rest. And this gentleman and his graduate student, uh, Charles Lineweaver, got a PhD in astronomy from Berkeley and now teaches at the Australian National University, have been taking Kepler's data and applying Bode's law to it and they are coming up with like an 86% uh, alignment. Um, and they're using it to predict where there should be planets discoverable. So um, this is like, um, if you're familiar with Mendeleev's uh, um, chart, what he did for chemistry was, was show a, uh, a plan of where the elements fit and at that time, in the middle of the 19th century, there were empty spaces, and he said, look here, look here, look here. So Bode's law potentially has the ability to do that uh, for uh, planets, which are very, very difficult to see. Um, we're kind of at the bleeding edge of the technology, so this is a help, perhaps. Um, we'll get into Mr. Lineweaver's stuff in a second, uh, or a number of seconds. Uh, it's different than my approach, but what unites us both uh, is this uh, starting to use these uh, 18th century, uh, this 18th century intuition uh, to uh, look at aspects of, the, of our universe and what are the implications, as Michael was saying. So here's uh, uh, Charles Lineweaver's predecessor uh, 200 plus years ago. His original name was Dietz, he's German. Uh, but if you were a professor, as soon as you got your PhD in those days, you uh, Latinized your name because you were writing in Latin for the most part. And so Dietz became Titius. Um, and he observed uh, that it's curious, he said, that if you take a, a doubling series, uh, 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, and then just for... Um, argument's sake, add a zero in front of it. Um, and then, uh, it's a kind of Julia Child astronomy. Uh, <laughs> multiply by three and then add four to that and then divide by ten. You come up with a series of numbers and um, 
these turn out to be within a percent or two of the distances of the planets from each other, these ratios. Um, and uh, people uh, were interested in that, and you can draw that uh, uh, graphically, as we have been doing, of these series of concentric circles, uh, and, and then draw where the planets actually are. Um, so red is predicted, black is... Uh, so you see this congruence, uh, which is um, very provocative, let's say. Uh, it was picked up by the Carl Sagan of the 18th century, a man named Johann Bode, um, and he, um, he cleaned up the... He took the Julia Child aspect out and made it more respectable, uh, uh, algebraically. Uh, it's not complicated algebra. It's kind of ninth-grade algebra, but that's what it looks like. It's the same thing uh, as, as Titius. It just looks more scientific. There is a peculiarity of it, though, which goes back to Titius adding that zero at the front, which is that in this formula there's a jump, a, a, a gigantic jump, from minus infinity to zero. So uh, an infinity of integers are removed, and it's peculiar. Um, he didn't note it as being peculiar, but it is peculiar, and we'll uh, investigate that in a second. Um, again, it was observed, and Bode thought it was interesting, but people really sat up and took uh, notice in uh, the following 20 years when Herschel, who was also a musician, he was a composer, you, now they're starting to play his symphonies on... Uh, on uh, classical radio stations now, but he, he worked, he was a German who worked in Bath in England as the director of choral uh, music at the cathedral there. And he was also the greatest uh, astronomical observer of his time. Talk about uh, multiple interests, uh, music, composing symphonies, and also grinding lenses. His telescopes were the best telescopes of the time, and he discovered the first non-naked eye planet ever. Um, he wanted to name it George. So it could have been Jupiter, Saturn, George. Uh, in honor of the King of England then, the infamous George III, uh, who he wanted, he hoped would be his patron. Um, and this was similar to uh, Galileo discovering those planet, the, the moons. He named them the Medician stars in honor of his potential patron, the Medici family. Um, but to the delight of all seventh grade boys, uh, Mr. Bode uh, decided a better name was Uranus, um, which in polite uh, company is called Uranus. Um, and that's what it is today. And then a couple of, uh, a couple of decades later, a, a Jesuit astronomer in Sicily discovered another planet, which was called Ceres, who is the goddess of Sicily, uh, goddess of grain and abundant cereal uh, comes from that same word. And these are the first planets ever, not just moons, uh, but planets, discovered telescopically. And Bode's law came into its own at this point because those two planets fit perfectly within the schema of Bode's law. There, there had been an empty space uh, between Mars and Jupiter. It was now filled. 
And by implication, there was a iteration one notch out from Saturn, and it was now filled. And both of them were within one or two percent of where they should be. So it became a law. This is the holy grail of science to be both descriptive and predictive. So that's Bode's law when it was formulated, described what we knew. And by implication, it predicted what we should find. And sure enough, we did find it. But then, uh, like all great tragedies, disaster happened. And in 1848, uh, 1846, uh, Neptune, the next planet out, was discovered. And of course, they had been looking for it at uh, the seventh orbit, um, but it didn't show up there. It, it perversely showed up inward of that. Um, and at that point, the balloon popped, uh, the enthusiasm waned, and uh, Bode's Law was demoted quickly and now is um, running around in the, the basement of numerology and mysticism and other things until I'm trying to <laughs> bring it back uh, from, that, uh, from that purgatory. Um, when, as you can see, Neptune is an order of magnitude off from where it should be. And um, obscurity uh, reigned. It was so obscure that when Pluto was discovered in 1929 by an American, uh, it fit exactly. But nobody mentioned that. Yeah. Um, so what do we do uh, with all of that? Here's the solar system bowed uh, orbits without Neptune. Looks very convincing. And there's Neptune uh, skirting in between. Uh, in fact, exactly halfway in between Pluto and Uranus. So let's, let's say, let, let's uh, go with it uh, and say Neptune is a renegade. It's, it's, a, it's a data point that doesn't fit. Rather than throwing the baby out with the bathwater, let's just throw out a cupful of the bathwater and say, for some reason, Neptune doesn't fit. And let's proceed forward with it off to the side. Um, Here's another enemy of Bode's law. Uh, mathematics, he's the Mozart of mathematics uh, in the early part of the 19th century. Mr. Gauss, uh, of whom several things have been named. Uh, but he uh, mathematically made the observation that there's this weird jump. What's going on with that? Why does it jump from minus infinity to zero? And he said that's mathematically suspect and therefore the law is suspect. So here is the formula with that jump in it between zero and minus infinity. What would happen if we just removed it? Say, OK, uh, there is no jump. And so instead of having the jump, we're going to make it a, uh, a, a all negative and positive integers from minus infinity to plus infinity. This is not, you know, we're talking about infinity, so it gets scary. But um, at minus infinity, it just means the orbits get closer and closer together until they are unbelievably close together. And so um, 
let's do that and see what happens, see if that takes us any further down the road. So here are the orbits predicted by the original Titius-Bode. And if we make that shift, that's what we see. So nothing really changes except we get this kind of tunnel vision uh, of this circle uh, going to a point and then stopping. And the orbits get closer and closer together. There, there it is again without, and there it is with. So if we take a little closer look at that, it looks something like that, which is kind of nice graphically. It, uh, it's pleasing. Uh, it actually has something to do with music. And in our system, it means that there are potential but unoccupied orbits between Mercury and Venus. So there could be things there, but there are not. So if we take a closer look still, we also see the same phenomenon in the rings of Jupiter. This is dust. Uh, the, each of these particles is about as big as a baseball, they say. Um, but you see this same uh, increasing density uh, closeness in orbital systems. You're listening to part one of our three-part series with Walter Murch. So it's not impossible. So there's a hypothesis here, which is not all predicted orbits must necessarily be occupied. Uh, again, an analogy with music here is you have the scale, you play a series of chords that doesn't, you know, there are notes there that you're not playing, and if you play a different chord, there are different notes that you play and different notes that you don't play. And there's a similarity here, which we'll see uh, as we get along, between orbital systems. In each system, there are some orbits that are occupied in one system and not occupied in another system. But the underlying something is nonetheless present. And this is very different than Bode and especially Titius, who were religious uh, as you needed to be in the 18th century. In fact, Titius said of that unoccupied orbit, which later got occupied by Ceres, he said, would the good Lord have left this orbit empty? Never. There must be something there. And sure enough, 20 or 30 years later, there was something found. Uh, so this idea that God would not uh, let things, if things were predicted, they should be filled. The idea that you would have, you know, build a house and have empty rooms in it would seem like a waste, and God never wastes things. So, anyway, we're we're not in that mindset anymore. So, uh, and it's very similar now. To, we're very familiar with this from the study of orbits around atoms. Electrons occupy different orbits, and sometimes, depending on the energy of the atom, uh, electron, it will occupy a higher orbit and then jump back and. That orbit is there potentially, but it's just unoccupied. So we're kind of thinking along those lines, but about celestial mechanics. Gauss also said, there are too many numbers uh, in, that, in Bode's formula. So how do we simplify it? Uh, four, three, two, where do, where do they come from? So let's see if we can aim at something simpler. Um, and in doing that, maybe discover the reason that it was complicated. So here's a, a kind of schematic uh, looking from the side at the, these orbits. Each of those thick vertical lines is, a, is an orbit. 
and you can see that Mercury is kind of inward of uh, the last one, and then Venus is sort of close to, and then Earth is right on the money uh, with one of those orbits. And um, for the purposes of argument, I'm going to call the distance from the center of the sun to the first of those potential orbits beta, or B, for Bode. Um, and that distinguishes it from our conventional understanding. Uh, it's a little egocentric, but we, dis we frame the, the distances in the universe according to the distance from the sun to Earth. Uh, they called the astronomical unit. And it's like we get to beat our chest, we're Earth. Uh, and everything is, you know, man is the measure of all things. Well, in this ast astronomical sense, Earth is the measure of all things. But maybe, you know, maybe that's part of the problem. Um, if the Earth is a one, then according to the formula, uh, if you just do the division, the distance to the first of these orbits is 0.4, or 40% of the distance. But it could be otherwise. Why don't we make that one, since it's the beginning of everything, let's make that into one. And if you do that, then the distance of the Earth becomes two and a half. So the Earth is two and a half times further out than the beginning of these potential orbits. And if you do that, we, let's call it Bode units, or beta units, um, because of this phenomenon. So there's the distinction, 0.4 to 1, or 1 to 2.5. Mathematically, it means exactly the same thing. It's just where our frame of reference has been shifted to something that isn't quite so egocentrically us, meaning the Earth. What happens when we multiply the Titius-Bode formula by 2.5 is it gets simpler. There's a little nagging uh, um, thread there because n becomes minus, it's n minus 2, but we have already defined n as an infinite series, so in fact it just means a shifting uh, of two clicks, but because it's infinite at both ends it doesn't matter, and so we can make the formula into a very nice 1, 2, 3. 1 plus 2 raised to some power times three. So, although that's very provocative, is it true? What does it, you know, what are the implications of this? And here, uh, are, we're comparing these two different formulas um, side by side, and as you would expect, the results on, in the new are two and a half times the old one. So if you look here, um, Earth is at 1, and here it's at 2.5, which is what we were talking about earlier. Uh, if you multiply 5.2 times 2.5, you get 13 for Jupiter. Um, but the, the key element of it is that the ratios, it doesn't matter, because the ratios remain the same. Uh, the, so the ratios of one orbit to the next are the same in this progression of the numbers that just appeared on the screen. 1.6, when you compare Earth's orbit to Mars' orbit as predicted by Bode's law, it's 1.6. And here's the, the key to it, in a sense, because the old formula uh, 
the beginning of the series was not the same as its point of reference, which is this nice number one, which makes everything simple. But if you start at my point four, everything gets kind of complicated. And there's this difference between these two numbers. In the new formula, the start is also the point of reference. You're starting off from one and then getting bigger. And that means that the formula can get very much simpler, as we just see. So the old formula from the middle of the 18th century depended on an exponential series which had this jump in it that, that, that Gauss didn't like. We got rid of that. And it also compared the values of that series to a reference point, Earth, which was kind of in the, tucked in the middle of the series itself. So the math had to do a kind of extra jujitsu move in order to uh, produce the right series of numbers. And by getting rid of this geocentricity, the Earth, we're, we're, we're so proud that we're in Earth, the formula got much simpler. So uh, letting all of that settle for a moment, let's take another little musical interlude here. Uh, there's that diagram again. Um, but as I was looking at that, uh, because I'm a film mixer and I, I spend a large part of my time do, mixing music and thinking musically, I thought, there's something funny about that that reminds me of something. Uh, because it, from the start of these series, each line is double the previous one. And I thought, well, it's just octaves. It's just music. And sure enough, uh, you can create a kind of Bode's law of music that the octaves of any note are that note, the, you know, the frequency of that note, whatever it is, 440 cycles per second, times 2 raised to various powers, which is kind of Bodian. Uh, and again, uh, for, in music, n is all integers from minus infinity to plus infinity just as we did with Bode's Law. And so taking 440 as a starting point, just we could, we could take any number, but let's say A from 440 and plugging in the numbers. sounding series of octaves. So what would happen, I said, if we took Bode's law and made a spreadsheet, instead of looking at planets, uh, as we had been doing, let's look at music. So get rid of B and put a note in there. Let's choose, in this case, 110, which is also A, a couple of octaves down. And Starting from this point, uh, apply all of our uh, math to this series. And the two, two circles there are 110 cycles multiplied by a Bode number, 7, gives you 770 uh, as a note. And see what notes they are. And you see on the right-hand side the notes which correspond. And very provocatively, a number of these are exactly 100%. Uh, on the money, and most of them are within 2% uh, of the money. 
and they correspond to the places, to the positions of the planets uh, in our observed solar system out to Pluto. So one of those notes, at the minus four one there, that's kind of separated out, is in our system, whole solar system, unoccupied. Can we find it in any other system where it might be occupied? Let's, before we do that, uh, just play the whole uh, solar system um, so you can hear it all together. jumping further out. And to make this resonate with the ancient world, uh, here it is really all together in one sound, looking up at the uh, Pantheon in Rome, which was also believed to be the representation of the celestial, uh, it was kind of the first planetarium in a sense. doesn't want to do it for some reason. Yeah, it is. us grab hold of what is going on is a concept of uh, kind of answer to a simple question which is what is the diameter of the earth or of any thing because of our history uh, and because we didn't believe for many years that air was anything we uh, calculated the diameter of the earth was from rock on the one side of the earth to the rock on the other side of the earth and we ignored the atmosphere. But the atmosphere is a part of the Earth, and we depend on it. Uh, it's an ocean in which we swim. It's just not as substantial as the ocean of water. And so um, the, uh, the diameter of the Earth without atmosphere is 12,000 kilometers, 13,000. Uh, but there is something called the exosphere, uh, which is the atmosphere at the farthest reaches uh, is 10,000 kilometers above the surface of the Earth. That's at the point at which the atoms of the atmosphere start to detach from the atmosphere and kind of wander off into the rest of space. Uh, they're no longer attracted to the surface of the Earth because they're so far up. So if you take the exosphere into account, uh, the Earth's diameter is actually 32,742 kilometers. Uh, and this is what we see when we look at Jupiter. Uh, Jupiter's atmosphere is visible. 
we can't see the core, the solid part of Jupiter. We just see its atmosphere. Uh, but for um, various historical reasons and also optical reasons, our atmosphere is not as thick as Jupiter's atmosphere, and so we can't see it from a distance. Uh, this does not apply in the same sense to the sun, uh, which also has an atmosphere, which is called the chromosphere. If we could see the chromosphere of the sun, it would look something like that. And we do see it during an eclipse, when the disk of the sun is covered by the disk of the moon. Uh, suddenly, the chromosphere appears. But its luminosity is about half the luminosity of the moon. And so when you look at the sun, you know, the brightest thing in our, uh, within our, our sight, uh, there's no way that the eye can also see the chromosphere unless there is an eclipse. So the, the, with the uh, diameter of the chromosphere, it's 11 million kilometers rather than being uh, whatever it is, 1.2 uh, million kilometers. But let's see if there's another way yet of thinking of uh, a, the orbit of the sun. Uh, a hypothetical circle quite far from the center of the sun, and we'll call it this same thing, this beta or bode, um, which is to say the orbit, anything inward of that orbit will eventually become part of the sun. So if it's beyond beta, it will have a stable orbit over billions of years. But if it's inward of that, then it, the tug will eventually uh, grab that thing and pull it into the orbit of, uh, of uh, into the body of, of the sun. So looking kind of side angle on this, uh, we see the sun in the middle of this and a radius uh, which sort of clears out uh, there's no debris in that area because the magnetic uh, tunnel uh, funnel of the sun is so powerful that anything in there will eventually get uh, pulled all the way into the sun. But beyond that, you start to get stability. And I've graphically represented that stability as a series of ridges, uh, kind of corrugation. Uh, this is a statistical corrugation, um, not a physical corrugation, and it's certainly not a corrugation in two dimensions. It would really be spherically represented, but it, that's hard to see. Uh, however, science has a weird way, uh, as we've discovered in the 20th century, of turning statistics into reality. Quantum mechanics is the first and uh, most prominent of that. But even Einstein's, he, he supposed the existence of the photon simply as a convenience, but sure enough, the photon showed up as a real thing. So it's not within the realm of possibility that something uh, that is very crudely represented here is going on. A closer look at it would be like this. And we see the bottoms of troughs, which are represented by bodes by this formula. They represent uh, the, the, the bottom of each of those troughs is further out than the bottom of the next one in. Uh, and it's represented by this formula. A s even simpler version of the formula represents the crests of these, uh, and we just no longer have the three involved. Uh, so you just start from uh, the end, uh, the, the, the circumference of beta, and then start iterating outwards using the various values of n. If you do that, then 
the planets fall into these valleys uh, and kind of stay there uh, and are, are, uh, have nicely permanent orbits uh, in the valleys of these uh, statistical uh, crests and, and th this undulating landscape. So if we plug those numbers in and we're going to take uh, the, the, a value which uh, I determine sort of uh, by curve fitting for beta being almost 60 million kilometers, um, if you plug that number in and then apply it to um, all of the other um, planets, you get this... Uh, series of uh, numbers which where Earth is not at zero. And that, that's the difference, not at 100%, say. And that's the difference, is that the, by doing this formula, we have deracinated, um, so to speak, Earth out of, we've taken Earth, it, it's not the standard of measurement anymore. Everything is sort of uh, on equal footing. The result of doing that is that, um, yeah, you, there you see it. It's not at 100%, which it was in the original Bode formulation. Uh, but that allows the collective accuracy to be 100%. Um, and then the, the maximum or the average excursion of any one uh, difference is around 2%. So where have we come? The hypothesis is... Beta is a sphere, the radius of something we'll awkwardly call the sphere of attraction, that, that anything inward of, of this point gets sucked in um, into the center. Uh, and then the formula that we came up with uh, would predict uh, stable, fertile zones. Otherwise, we could call them troughs in this undulating landscape. And the simpler version of the formula predicts unstable, barren zones where nothing is stable over time. Now, the, a, a kind of a side note here is that any orbit is possible. Uh, we're not overruling Newtonian uh, dynamics. Um, but what we're talking about is over time, that within the jostling of... Uh, planets with each other and um, all of the mutual influences and maybe something of which we haven't yet uh, identified completely. Uh, there are places where orbits, where things like to orbit and places where they don't like to orbit. And this is predicting that, un that landscape, um, that undulating landscape over what we're talking about is hundreds of millions, billions of years. There is this settling in, this kind of bedding in to uh, an, an underlying uh, virtual landscape. So we removed the jump in the series, and we replaced it with a true infinite set, which core, uh, interestingly is part of uh, musical theory, and it suggests these virtual orbits between Venus and Mercury. We reduced the number of arbitrary constants uh, which came about, we discovered, because of using Earth as the center, as the standard of measurement, which the original formula did for understandable reasons. But that also improved the collective accuracy, and we hypothesized this idea that not all orbits need to be occupied. Uh, 
and um, the uh, the idea of these these uh, the crests being repulsive areas are areas where that's yet to be demonstrated. Um, but we only are still talking about nine planets, and we still we can't forget Neptune, um, and we don't know why it happened. So these are kind of red uh, flag things. And Gauss also agreed with that. He said, there's too few planets. Uh, if you have four arbitrary constants in the original formula and you're only describing eight planets, which was all that was known at the time, then that's not also mathematically sound. So now we want to look at other systems. And the first place we can look are systems within our system that uh, Jupiter is a moon, uh, has moons, just like the sun has planets, Jupiter has moons. But it also has many more moons, uh, and it turns, if you plot all of their orbits, it turns into this cat's cradle mess, uh, which is daunting to say the least. However, most of those moons have diameters of five kilometers, so they're like little fragments. So. Let's uh, simplify it by, uh, by uh, creating a floor that we're not going to go under, uh, which uh, is 200, so let's say 200 kilometers and above to the diameter, which there's Jupiter on the left, that circle on the right is a 200 kilometer moon. So you can imagine how small a moon with you know, five kilometers, let alone uh, below that would be. So we're we're saying, let's weed out the garden here to see where the, the real plants are and, and see if we can learn anything from that. By uh, comparison, there are the four moons of Jupiter in size relationship to Jupiter itself. And here, by the same token, is the Earth in relation, and Earth's moon. So you can see that Earth's moon is about the same size as Jupiter's moons. It is abnormally large relative to the size of the Earth, but compared to Jupiter and its moons, it could easily have been one of the moons of Jupiter from a size point of view. So there are, uh, we've seen this before, there are Jupiter's moons, there are the distances of the moons uh, from the Sun, and what we're interested in is the uh, ratio of those distances, and when we do the math, that's what we get. Uh, 1.59, 1.59, 1.76. So using that as a kind of fragment of DNA, let's run that up against the predicted orbits and see if we can find where they align. Well, they don't align there. If we go further down, they don't align there. But if we do, hmm, one of them doesn't, but the other, two others do. That uh, in Bode, it says you should find two planets with a ratio of 1.6, let's say 1.59, and then two more further out with a ratio of 1.75 instead of 1.76. So let's, for the moment, focus just on these and use our, our same graph that we had before. Uh, and we find that Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto, the three outer moons of Jupiter, are relatively speaking in the same orbits as Earth, Mars, and Ceres, and the orbits as predicted by Bode's law. Yeah. 
if we plug a hypothesized uh, value for beta into the um, spreadsheet, we come up with uh, an agreement of very, very close, 100.03%, uh, 99.71%, and 100.27. So it's very provocative. Uh, there is one little fly in the ointment, uh, which is, um, well, here's the music for that. But the fly in the ointment is I.O., uh, which is, again, provocatively, exactly in the midpoint between two adjacent orbits, just like Neptune was in the solar system. So we're going to add it to the list of renegades here. And um, at this point, let's take a break, and uh, we will return and finish out the solar system. You've been listening to part one in our three-part series with Walter Murch, hosted by Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kira Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M. O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. <laughs>